God, we think about that vision we saw last week. The vision of the Son of Man, the High Priest, the King, walking amongst the lampstands with white hair, white as snow, and burning eyes, and feet like burnished bronze. The Son of Man exalted above all the earth, who holds the seven stars in his hand and walks amongst the seven golden lampstands. God, we see that vision tonight again as we think about you speaking to your church. And even tonight as we think about you speaking to the church in Ephesus, God, we recognize that these are timely words. That these are words for the church, not just the church of the first century, but the church of today. Your church, through the thousands of years of its existence, Lord, you are still speaking to us today. God, we pray. We beg you, speak to us tonight. Lord, we need your voice. We need your voice to to live our lives in a way that's worthy of you, that's worthy of the calling with which you've called us. We need your spirit to be guide to our, our hearts and the way we live and the way we think and the way we operate, God. Oh, Father, would you give us your two greatest gifts in ever greater proportion? Would you give us more of your Son and your Spirit? That we would look like Jesus and think like him and act like him. That we would be indwelt with your Spirit and full of your presence. That we might witness, we might be people who show what it is like to follow Christ. That we would be people who are changed into his image. That look like him. Operate like him. God, help us tonight, we pray. Speak to us. Make your voice clear, God, through my words and through, more importantly, your words as we read Revelation 2, this letter written to the church at Ephesus. God, would your spirit speak to us tonight? Lord, let us have ears. Let us have ears to hear what the spirit is saying to the church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Good to see you all tonight. Thank you, Aaron, Tyler. Wonderful. Uh, Tonight we're going to uh, start off the letters to the churches, so I'm excited about that. Uh, But like I've I've said each week, this is important to me. We've got to get in the right framework, the right mindset to understand this book. Because again, this is a book of comfort. This is a book talking about what the church needs, what it needs to persevere, what it needs to be successful, what it needs to live its life amongst the world, a world which is hostile to it. So getting in that framework, it's it's good to read about what Christians of the past have faced, what they've experienced, what they've suffered for their witness to Jesus. And it reminds us how this book that seems so overwhelming can be a book of comfort. Tonight, we're going to start by reading the story of Polycarp. Polycarp is interesting because Polycarp was an actual student of the Apostle John. 
So he's one of the, he's really John's next generation, a, a, a man who he raised up to be a leader. And he was the bishop of the church of Smyrna, which of course is not this week. This week we're reading Ephesus. Next week we'll read the letter to the church at Smyrna. But tonight I thought this would be appropriate as we think about this man who followed in John's footsteps and what his life came to. I'll read to you. This is again out of Fox's Book of Martyrs. Polycarp, who was a student of the Apostle John and the overseer of the church in Smyrna. He heard that soldiers were looking for him, and he tried to escape the city, but he was discovered by a child. After feeding the guards who captured him, he asked for an hour in prayer, which they gave him. He prayed with such fervency that his guards said they were sorry that they were the ones who had captured him. Nevertheless, he was taken before the governor and condemned to be burned in the marketplace. After his sentence was given, the governor said to him, reproach Christ and I will release you. Polycarp answered, 86 years I have served him and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? In the marketplace, he was tied to the stake rather than nailed, as was the usual custom, because he assured them he would stand immovable in the flames and not fight them. As the dry sticks placed around him were lit, the flames rose up and circled his body without touching him. The executioner was then ordered to pierce him with a sword. When he did, a great quantity of blood gushed out and put out the fire. (laughs) Although his Christian friends asked to be given his body as it was so they could bury him, the enemies of the gospel insisted that his body be burned in the fire, which was done. Again, you see the, the cruelty, the cruelty that is inflicted on these people for their belief. And of course, one of the significant pieces of their belief is that they would not be a part of the imperial cult, that they would not worship idols. And of course, that was required as a good citizen of the Roman Empire. You were required to sacrifice to the idols, and particularly to the emperor. That's part of what being a citizen of Rome was. There was one group of people who was excluded from that. It was the Jews. (laughs) They had a royal, an imperial edict protecting them from having to sacrifice to the idols, to the emperor. And as Christianity and Judaism separated over time, Christians lost that protection under their kind of Jewish origins as they started to really become distinct from one another. Christianity continued to lose any protection it had under that Jewish law. And more and more you would see Christians begin to be martyred for their faith because they wouldn't sacrifice. And it was required the Jews had their special exception, but Christians, they, especially if they were Gentile, what excuse did they have, right? So that is the mindset we're in as we read these things. That's the mindset of, of these people. I mean, th- this story is from the generation after John. I mean, John wrote this book and the next generation, his, his disciple, the, the man he raised up to follow Christ is experiencing this kind of persecution, so these are heavy days, heavy days, even in the midst of the writing of this book. 
So, tonight we'll be going through the first letter, Revelation 2, verses 1 to 7. <clears throat> this is the letter to the church at Ephesus. So as we read this, it's, it's, you're in for a treat. We'll probably get out of here in only like 40 minutes. I, I realized, looking at my sermons, that my average sermon length for this series is like an hour and 15 minutes. Uh, I think the shortest one I had was an hour and four minutes, which is kind of shocking, but there you go. So this one's going to be pretty short. We only got seven verses, um, comparatively at least. But Revelation 2, verses 1 to 7, I've entitled this sermon, Remember the Presence, because that's the heart. That's the heart of the letter to Ephesus, and you'll see all the allusions that are made to that concept as we go through these seven verses. But it's significant, and really, it always is significant that the presence of God dwells among his people. And that is a reality which it's easy to forget when we just look at the earthly, when you're just thinking about the chairs and the building and, and the PowerPoint and all of that stuff, we forget about that one who walks among the lampstands that we talked about last week. And as John is going to write these letters to the churches, really as Jesus is speaking to the churches, each of them is going to have a specific point that's laid out for what these churches need. And so I've titled each one of these sermons as we go through the seven churches uh, according to that theme. And the theme to the church at Ephesus, I would say, is this. Remember the presence. Remember the presence. Because the church at Ephesus was in danger of forgetting. Forgetting that Jesus walked among them. That was their, their great flaw. And you'll see in what John says as we go through these verses what that means. But first, we need to look at this <clears throat> in a broader context. As we're just coming to the first letter, I want to talk about all seven letters first to, to give you some concept of what's going on with them and what the history of interpretation is as it relates to them. Verse 1 of chapter 2 starts like this. All of chapter 2 and chapter 3, by the way, are the letters. So chapter 2 and 3 are the letters to the churches, all seven in those two chapters. Verse 1 of Revelation 2, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. <clears throat> now, each letter to a church starts with kind of an introduction about who is speaking to them. And in this one, it's the one who holds the seven stars and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. All of the introductions to all seven letters are coming out of that vision we read about last week. That vision of the Son of Man, all the language is somehow it's connected to that vision. And each piece of that vision, no, I'm not saying that each piece is used, but each piece that is used is specifically related to the message that Jesus has to share. And there's something really beautiful about that to me because it reminds me that Jesus is so multifaceted. He's so grand. He's so great. The, the God that we serve is so magnificent that facets of him can speak to us in different ways. In fact, facets of him can speak to each one of the churches in different ways for what he has to say to them. And we're gonna see that here. 
But remember this number seven we've kept coming back to, and this is important for the interpretation of this section because chapters two and three, at least relatively in terms of the the book of Revelation, are pretty straightforward. The language is not as symbolic. It's not as hard to understand. Whereas when you get to chapter four through 21, 22, it's a lot harder, isn't it? But these letters seem pretty straightforward, at least in terms of, of relativity, like I said. Well, there's a lot of different interpretations about why these letters are here, what they function like, and how they're related to the rest of the book. So now at the outset, I think it's good for us to talk about that. So one thing that you've seen, I told you in verse uh, 19 of chapter one, right, that write the things that you've seen, the things that are, and the things that will be, or that will take place after these things. The futurist interpretation was chapter one is the things you've seen, Chapters two and three are the things that are. So it's talking about the present. The reality of the churches is the present. And then chapters four to 21 is the things after these things. It's all about the future. That's how a futurist interprets the layout of the book of Revelation. But one thing that is often mentioned as it relates to the futurist interpretation specifically is... um, But really for all interpretations is this number seven is showing up again. And we've talked about this number seven already multiple times, which is that it is this number of completeness. And so when it refers to the seven churches, most interpreters, most commentators think that it's referring to the completeness of the church. So even though these are written, everyone acknowledges these are written to seven real churches that existed in Asia Minor in the first century. Everyone acknowledges that. But in some sense, the number seven is saying that this is not just about those seven churches. It's about the entirety of the church. It's about the completeness, the fullness of the church. And so they would say these messages are not just to these seven churches. They're actually to every church, to every church that ever has existed and ever will exist. Because these messages are for the fullness of God's church. And so that's why there's seven churches that are specifically singled out to to represent that fullness. Now, I agree in the sense that this is, uh, these seven messages are are applicable to every church. These are fundamental messages that will apply to every church that ever exists at different phases of their life. That at different points in their life, maybe every church won't experience every one of these, but there's certainly something that every church will need to hear. Every church will need to be warned about. Every church will need to be commended for. These are the ones that really stick out. And that's why they're written about here in Revelation. Now, to be fair, I don't think this means, because it's seven, that this is the fullness of the messages that God has. Right? It's not like this is the only seven things God can say to the church. Which some people might interpret it that way. This is the fullness of God's message to the church. I don't think that's the case. I think it's reminding us that these are the fundamental messages that every church needs to hear. These seven. The fullness of the church needs to hear these things. But I still think that God speaks to churches in other ways than this that are really unique and individual. That every church is not going to need to hear, Right? For example, we're in this area, so you would imagine we want to do ministry in this area and see people be saved in this area. You're not going to have a letter say, hey, 
Every church needs to know. You need to get people saved in, Seattle, in the greater Seattle area, right? Because that's not every church's mission. But all the things in, contained in these letters are true of every church. They need to be true of every church to really be the church. Unlike uh, the more unique things that specific congregations might hear that is really from the Lord specifically to them. And so when we read these messages, I think that's that seven numbers, the fullness of what needs to be said for every church, for the fullness of the church to hear. Now, the one other thing you'll see, and this is usually in futures interpretations, is that the seven, that number seven, is referring to seven, seven different ages through which the church has walked. And that those seven ages relate to kind of losing, forgetting their first love like it talks about in Ephesus and then facing persecution with Smyrna's letter and then going on and, and dealing with being near Satan's throne with Pergamum. All these different are different eras of the church. That's how one futurist uh, interpretation goes, that as these happen in successive order, they lead up right to the end times. And so when you get to Laodicea, which is the final letter of the seven, and is functionally a complete condemnation, you are doing everything wrong. When you get there, then they would say, well, yeah, and that's what the church looks like right before the end. Everything's gone wrong. And then the end comes, right? So that's how that interpretation, I tend to reject that. I don't think that's necessarily what the seven is trying to talk about is the completeness of the age. I guess it's possible. And certainly these are all things because they're so human, you will see happen in different ages over and over and over. I think that's true. But the, the main point I think is that the fullness of the church needs to hear these things, needs to be warned, needs to be encouraged, needs to be commended. So we're going to walk through them one by one and hear what they have to say to that church, but also what they have to say to us, because they're speaking to us as well. So, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, we saw this last week. Remember, he, the seven stars, it interpreted it for us, which is really nice in, in verse 20. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven golden lampstands are the churches. So what is he saying when he says the one who holds them and the one who walks among them? He's saying, I'm present, I'm there. Now we read this introduction and we just think, okay, maybe all it's really saying is that it's about Jesus, but it's trying to tell us something specific about Jesus. And the specific thing it's trying to tell us about Jesus is that by using these terms, holding the seven stars, walking among the lampstands, that he is present. It's not just about Jesus generically. It's about that fact that Jesus is present. Why? Well, because the letter has to do with, like I told you, remember the presence. Remember he's here. Verses two and three. Here's what Jesus speaks to the church in Ephesus. I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you have found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown 
weary. So where does Jesus start with the letter to Ephesus? He says, the one who is present among the churches, I have this to say. Good job, Ephesus. Good job, Ephesus. What do you do well? I actually think these three terms are explaining deeds, toil, perseverance, what is said here. What's their deeds? It's that they don't tolerate evil people. They don't want evil in their midst. What's their toil? What's the work they set about? Testing those who claim to be apostles. What's the point of the testing? What's that about? What is it they're trying to discern? They tested them. They found them to be false. It's about their beliefs. It's about their doctrine. See, what Ephesus did really well is that they understood doctrinal purity. They understood keeping the teaching of the church sacred. They knew the right things to believe. That's what Jesus is saying here. And you have perseverance. You've endured for my name's sake. You haven't grown weary. You have not grown weary of knowing and believing the right things. You have worked hard in your belief. You've toiled at it. You've persevered in it. This is a church that knows what it believes and stands for it. Their convictions are strong. This is, uh, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't say this. Maybe I'll make Aaron laugh, so I'll say it just for Aaron. This this sounds like a strong Reformed church. (laughs) This is a Reformed church. Their doctrine's sorted out. When I think of Ephesus, I know quite a few Reformed churches that struggle with what Ephesus struggles with. Their doctrine, man, it's checked down the line. They've got it. It is laid out and it is clear and it is perfect. Everything fits. We've got it. And we won't tolerate anyone who comes in and claims something different. Jesus says, good job. Good job. That's what we're called to do. (laughs) Hold the doctrine of, of the gospel with strength. But... Oh, you know what? Let me go back here first. So, I know your deeds and your toil. This is interesting because this is not the first time Ephesus has been mentioned in regard to this. This is something that they took very seriously. If you know anything about Ephesus, you'll know that it was a big city. In fact, probably the most major city in Asia Minor. And it's this kind of port where everyone would come in before they'd embark anywhere else. And of course, one thing that's very notable in Acts is it was where the temple of Artemis was. And so there was this huge, um, huge amount of people there who were working in these pagan temples, priestess and, and priests and all these people who were related to temple work for the Greek goddess Artemis. <clears throat> and so you have all these confrontations there, right? And Paul is there a long time. Paul kind of sets it up as his base of operations. And it says at one point he's there for three years. Well, in Acts 20, he's getting ready to leave Ephesus. And he says that the Holy Spirit has told me, he, he's like, I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but the one thing the Holy Spirit has made clear is that bonds in affliction wait for me everywhere I go. So that's the only thing that God's made evident to me. 
And so he's giving them their final instructions. It says they're all weeping together. They're, they're just grieving over Paul leaving because they love each other so deeply. And Paul is giving them final instructions and listen to what he says in Acts 20, verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be on the alert Remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Paul's saying, people are gonna come in and they're gonna try and mess up what you believe. They're gonna try and teach you perverse things to twist the truth of the gospel. Sounds like Ephesus took that really serious, doesn't it? They took that very seriously, what Paul told them, because Jesus commends them for it. You do not tolerate people who come in and and think they're going to be leaders, think they're going to be apostles, think they're going to teach you, and they're teaching false things contrary to the gospel. You repudiate them. You test them, and you see by their character and what they preach that they are false apostles. They are not true. Good job. You listen to Paul's voice. You listen to Jesus' voice. But, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. See, they believed all the right things. And and again, like I said, this does sound like some Reformed churches I know. They believed all the right things and they forgot the presence. Now there's a debate about what that first love means. Some people think think it means it's, it's the first love is that loving one another in the church, that like taking care of each other. Some people think it means that it's related to that, the witnessing power of the church. That, you know, you've lost, you're so engaged in the internal dynamic, right, the doctrinal piece, that you've totally forgotten about the world beyond. You have no hope, no, no, no joy, no passion for evangelism. I, I think it's simpler than that because it looks to me when he says you've lost your first love, the only thing I can imagine your first love is God himself. Now, clearly their beliefs weren't wrong. They, he just got, they, the whole church just got commended for it. Jesus himself said, good job. You test people to see if their beliefs are right. And when they're wrong, you call them out on it. But you've forgotten your first love. See, because the heart of Christianity does not lie in the right beliefs or the correct things that you've got ticked off on your theological checklist. It lies in the living God. 
and to forget the living God dwells among you is to forget what it even means to be a Christian. They believed all the right things and they forgot the presence. So he says, you've forsaken your first love. Me. The one who's here with you. Why do I think the first love is about the presence? Because that's the imagery he keeps using. He starts out by talking about himself in what way? As the one who walks among you. What's their common, or excuse me, what's the condemnation that they receive? You've forgotten I'm with you. You've forgotten I walk among you. You've forgotten that your first love is me here with you. Because you're so focused on making sure everything's right and every box is ticked, every T crossed and I dotted, you've forgotten what's at the heart of this. So he warns them. This is a warning. And the warning, uh, the severity of the warning is elicited by what the punishment entails. What's Jesus say is the punishment. He says, you need to remember, remember how far you've fallen. Remember what it was like. Well, I'm going to say this. It doesn't say this explicitly, but when we get to the end of the letter, I think you'll understand why I think this. Remember your fall. (laughs) Remember when you were really inundated with my presence, when you were focused on my presence and how far you've fallen from that place. Remember the heights of that fall. It reminds us of another fall in scripture that will be mentioned in just a few verses. Remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the things you did at first. Do the things that were just about loving me and being in my presence and being near to me. Because elsewise, I am coming to you and I am going to remove your lampstand. What's the lampstand? It's been a consistent image so far. The lampstand is the image of the church. Jesus says, I'm going to revoke you as a church. You will no longer stand as as the church. Now, again, some people have that, they have a a real tough time swallowing that as the interpretation of what Jesus is saying. And mainly it's because it sounds like someone could lose their salvation. And of course, if you don't believe someone can lose their salvation, this can't mean that, right? (laughs) It can't mean you're going to lose your salvation if you've theologically committed to the fact that no one can lose their salvation. Um, And I don't even necessarily think that's what this is trying to say. But what I do think it's saying is that there is a judgment at which at the communal level, the church of Ephesus will cease to be a church. Because this is not about an individual losing or gaining salvation. This is about the church as a community being judged, which God often does. One thing we, I I, I try to point this out when I can, but I think we often forget it, is that God judges at every level. He judges, 
humanity as a, as a species. He judges nations, national entities. He judges Israel. He judges Babylon. He judges communities. And he judges individuals. He doesn't focus at one level. He's at all the tiers. And communities, cities even, they receive a communal judgment. Now, what does that entail? Beats me. I don't know. I don't know how to answer that for you. But it's pretty consistent in Scripture that communities are judged. Right? Jesus says explicitly in the Gospels, he he says to Israel in, in their day, if I had done the works for Sodom and Gomorrah that I did here in you, Jerusalem, they would have repented. And yet you do not. Jerusalem doesn't repent, but Sodom and Gomorrah would have. What's he say next? But as it is for you, Jerusalem, your judgment will be worse than theirs because you've seen me and still rejected me. That's a communal judgment. He's not saying this random individual in Sodom is going to be judged. He's talking about them as a community. I think that's exactly what's going on here. This is not about an individual losing or gaining self. This is about the existence of the church at Ephesus. It's role as a lampstand. If they persist to ignore the presence of the one who walks amongst the lampstands, he will remove their lampstand. They will cease to be a church. And of course, what's most scary about that means they will cease to be in his presence. He's removing the lampstand from the holy place. That's a severe judgment. And it's said with the greatest severity. Unless you repent. So Ephesus, change this. Change this. Because otherwise I'm coming. This coming is interesting. I think it, uh, this is kind of an aside. I think it kind of relates in, in my mind when I think about it to the Hebrew concept of pakad, which is uh, an, an Old Testament Hebrew word that means to visit. It's like to visit someone. You know, like you go to see them. Is an interesting word because it's an ironic word. It has to do kind of like, you can see how it relates to kind of the concept of coming, right? I'm going to visit someone. I'm going to come to them. I'm going to come and visit them. I think Jesus is using it in that same way of the old Hebrew because God will often say, I am going to visit you in judgment. He uses that word, pakad. It's an ironic word, right? You can have a visit where you have a nice time, but you can have someone visit you to wreck shop, right? That can happen too. And God often uses that in the Old Testament to say, I, if you're not careful, I'm coming for a visit. Actually, Paul kind of uses the same language, doesn't he? It's kind of a warning that he uses uh, with the Corinthians. And really even with with, um, Philemon, in Philemon. I'm coming to see you soon. I know that you're going to do the things I've asked of you because I'm coming to see you. 
That's what Jesus is saying. Don't be, don't be fooled. I'm coming. And if I come, things have not changed. I'm removing your lampstand. Okay. Yet this you do have. This you do have. Here's another thing. He's got another commendation for them, something good that they do. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, this group, the Nicolaitans, is a, a mysterious group. There's not much that people, there's a lot of theories, there's a lot of things thrown around about who they are, but not much is known. What is interesting is that uh, Nicolaios, or Nicolaion, what the word's coming from means he who overcomes the people. It's, it's, it's overcomes the people, right? This one who overcomes. It could just be the name Nicholas, Nicolaus, right? This is, this is just the followers of Nicholas. But interestingly, the name Nicholas, right? This, where this is coming from is the one who overcomes the people. It's this kind of conquering idea. <clears throat> There's these three groups that are mentioned in three different letters. The Nicolaitans here, I think it's two letters from now. You have this group that's related to Balaam from the Old Testament. And then you have another group that's related to Jezebel in another one of the letters. I think those groups are not necessarily identical, but I think they all function the same way in the letter, which is what's interesting. So in this letter, what he's saying is, you've done a good job internally, Internally, you have been doctrinally pure. You've protected yourself from those who would call themselves apostles, who would pretend they're part of the church, but really are not. From the inside, they're wolves, like Paul talked about. They're trying to tear you apart from the inside. They claim to be Christians, yet are not. Well, if these Nicolaitans are like the Balaam group or like the Jezebel group, what they seem to be is worldly figures who are trying to tempt the church to compromise or be like the world. What's interesting is some scholars connect the Balaam group and this group because Balaam's name, when translated, means he who consumes the people. (laughs) The names kind of give off the same, one in Greek and one in Hebrew, give off the same idea, this one who conquers or, or entices or takes over the people. And so most likely what's going on here is just saying, listen, you guys have done a good job in protecting from doctrinal enemies inside the church. And actually you've done a good job protecting from being like the world too. You've just forgotten me, the heart. But I think that's kind of as much as we can pull from at least the name Nicolaitans. But people don't know exactly what it was they were trying to do, what they were trying to get you know, the, the Ephesian church to compromise on. They don't necessarily know. But my guess is this is an, a worldly group that is saying, hey, listen, it's okay. Sacrifice to the idols. You can still be Christians and do that, right? You can still be like us. And, and still be Christian, right? It's this, it's, you don't have to be so dogmatic, right? You don't have to be so harsh. You can just be like the world. It's okay. Well, Jesus says the Ephesians hate the deeds of those people. And he says, I hate them also. I hate those deeds. 
I hate those, the, the, the groups who will try and convince you to just be like everyone else. Have nothing that sets you apart. Have nothing that makes you a citizen of a different kingdom, my kingdom. And you look just like the kingdom of the world. Okay. He who has an ear. This is verse seven. The last verse. We're already here. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is how every letter ends. Every letter ends with this call to hear. Sometimes they're in different orders, but these two pieces always end the letter. A call to hear what the Spirit is speaking, A, and then B, what God is going to give them. What God is going to give them as an inheritance if they can overcome if they, can, if they can conquer their, whatever it is that they're struggling with, it, whatever their problem is, if they can conquer it, they have a, a reward waiting. There's an inheritance coming if they can do that. And for them, their inheritance is to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. But before we go on with that, I think we need to talk about he who has an ear. He who has an ear is a quote it's a quote from somewhere in the Old Testament, of course. Um, and it's a significant one. And I think it's particularly significant because of the fact it shows up in all the letters. And if you know the context of this verse, where it's coming from, then I think even more so it helps us understand the book of Revelation. This quote, he who has an ear. Now, you might actually recognize this, uh, even if you're not an Old Testament reader and you just read the New Testament, you might recognize this because who else says this? Well, he's saying it here too, but he says it in another context, which is Jesus. Jesus says this in the Gospels. You know when he says it? You know when Jesus uses the phrase, he who has an ear? It's related to one specific thing he does. He always uses it in this context. It's... I don't, I don't want to say it's the only time, but I'm, it's the vast majority at least of the time, if not the only time he uses it. It's at least in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's whenever he tells a parable. He uses this language, he who has an ear, let him hear. Now he's quoting something. Now that is significant that Jesus, even just stopping there, that's significant. That this verse that is being quoted in all, four, all seven of the letters, it shows up every time in the letters, is from Jesus when he quotes parables. And when he's telling a story, these unique stories. Now I think, and I, I think most people would probably agree studied it, that even when Jesus is using it in the parables, he's using it himself quoting from the Old Testament. And he's quoting very specifically because of what the purpose of a parable is. What Jesus is trying to accomplish by telling a parable. Now this verse in the Old Testament comes from Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6 is a wonderful passage. I could preach on Isaiah 6 for weeks. It is a great, great passage. I look forward to the day that I preach Isaiah to you and get to tell you about Isaiah 6. Now, we know Isaiah 6, meaning P, 
people have heard of it because this is the unique special commission that Isaiah receives, right? And we tend to know some of those stories, bits and pieces, right? Where the, the prophet receives this great vision and then they're commissioned. And we all know that verse because we use it for missionary work all the time. Here I am, send me, okay? That's the scene when this verse comes up. But the story is much more powerful than that, much more significant than that. And we always forget what God says after Isaiah goes, here I am, send me. He's all excited. Well, God gives him the commission next, what his message is. So if you read Isaiah 6, it's this wonderful vision. And it truly is a great vision. I mean, it's one of those visions you come back to over and over and over. Isaiah sees God sitting on his throne. And of course, the imagery is that of, G, uh, is of the Father, the, the, of Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament too, but that's his covenant name in the Old Testament. You see him sitting on the throne, which is supposed to be his space in the temple. It's all this temple imagery. He's sitting on his throne, which is this mercy seat in the temple. And Isaiah sees him, and, and there's an altar before him. So again, we know we're in the temple. What's Isaiah's response to seeing God? What was that? Yeah, he thinks I'm dead. He says, I am a man of unclean lips. He says, I'm defiled. And not only am I a man of unclean lips, I live among a people of unclean lips. I'm done. I can't be in the presence of this holy God. Death is here. <laughs> What's God do? He has an angel. That, and I mean, this is such a beautiful Jesus image. What's he do? He has an angel go and take a coal from the altar and he presses it to Isaiah's lips. I should, just stop. I, I should just move on and go because, of course, we've got more to talk about. But I just love this story, and so I'm going to stop here for a second. It's the salvation story. A coal from the sacrificial altar is taken and put on Isaiah's lips, and his lips are cleansed. Isaiah thinks he's dead, and instead a sacrificial coal from the altar cleanses his defilement at God's command. Isaiah has the gospel happen to him before Jesus appears. That's the story of the gospel. Okay. Isaiah, petrified, he thinks he's dead. What happens once his lips are cleansed? Remember, he just said, I'm a man of unclean lips uh, from a people who are of unclean lips. I'm dead. As soon as he's cleansed, as soon as he's made righteous, as soon as he's made holy, as soon as he's made clean, his attitude immediately shifts. He's sitting in the courtroom, right? He's sitting in the throne room and God is holding court. He's in his throne and there's all these beings around and he's asking a question. He's like, I have a mission for someone. Whom shall I send? Who will go for me? He's asking in the assembly. Isaiah, 
the man who just thought he was going to die from being in God's presence, is so overjoyed, so filled with fire and and just passion from the cleansing that he speaks up in God's court unashamedly before everyone. He goes, here I am, send me. Full of faith. Ready for what God has for him. And God receives that. God receives Isaiah. And Isaiah is given a mission, a prophetic commission. What's the commission? I love it because Isaiah is unafraid of what God's going to give him. But I'll be honest, I can only imagine Isaiah did not expect this would be his job that this would be what God gave him. God says to him this. Go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and turn and be healed. Wow. The commission he receives is to make them dull and dumb and blind. Why? Because they need to be judged. Israel has a judgment coming that they've earned and they need to receive it. (laughs) And so when I hear Isaiah's next line, I can only imagine he's dumbfounded at what he just signed up for. And he says, Lord, how long? How long? Until cities are devastated and without inhabitant. Houses are without people and the land is utterly desolate. Isaiah is commissioned for judgment. Now, when this phrase, he who has ears to hear, quoting here, that they might hear with their ears and turn and be healed, which Jesus explicitly quotes this verse in the Gospels. Every time this hear with their ears piece comes up, you know what one of the OT prophets does? They either start speaking parabolically or they start acting parabolically, they do symbolic actions. And of course, one of the essences of parables is that they're symbolic. Now, ringy, 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 does symbolic make us think of revelation at all? It should. Chapters 4 to 22 are pretty hard to understand. And before you even get to any of those chapters, all seven churches are told, he who has ears to hear, listen to what the, the Spirit is saying, right? They're all told that. And then the rest of the book looks like a giant parable that's hard to understand and symbolic. Why? Well, we have to understand the point of parables. See, the point of parables is to render the hearts of this people insensitive. It's to to bind people up in judgment. 
So there is a dual function to parables. For those who don't believe, they're confused. They're baffled. They don't seek out the answers. In fact, it hardens them further. That's the point of the parable. But for those who believe, they're changed by it. They're warned by it. They seek to understand it. And when they do, they receive the message. He who has an ear to hear, let him understand what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Now what does that mean about the messages of the book of Revelation? that this shows up in the letter to all the churches. The all the churches to which the whole book was written. John is saying, and Jesus is saying, that for those who are not believers among the community, it's gonna harden their, it will harden their hearts. It will seal them in for the judgment that is coming. But for those who believe, they will receive the message of the book of comfort. They will receive the understanding of what God has to say, and they will be changed by it. And when there's a warning, they'll be warned by it. And when there's an encouragement, they'll be encouraged by it because it's binding people up in the condition of who they are and what they are. What they, what they, the condition of their heart is exposed before a parable. Right? Even before we get to the prophets, well before we get to the gospels, we still see this evidence of parables and and its effect on people. The power of a story. Because one of the reasons this happens is the prophets, their whole job was to warn people and to to remind them to go back to covenant. And, And when did parables come up? Well, they always came up as a sign of judgment. But why? It was when the word stopped working. Listen, I don't know how many ways I can tell you, stop sinning, stop committing adultery. Stop. That stopped working. And they needed a new method, a new way to explain the truth of the warning, to explain the truth of the encouragement, explain the truth of what was going to happen. And so what did they do? They came up with symbolic actions, like Ezekiel walking naked for years as a sign of the judgment that would come upon them. They came up with stories that would explain the message in a powerful, creative way, but it hardened the hearts of those who didn't believe. It encouraged and uplifted the hearts of those who did, and sometimes it even shocked those who didn't believe into belief. Rare, but possible. I think one of the great parables of the whole Bible, and it's before, like I said, it's before we even get to the prophets, before, well before the gospels, there's a parable given to David by the prophet Nathan. And you probably remember this story. I always, it always sticks with me because it's so powerful. David, he's the greatest king Israel ever had. Israel had its biggest boundaries of all time in David's reign the great king. And this great king does one of the most evil things that anyone has ever done, basically. 
in what he does with Bathsheba, what he does with Uriah. It's, it's heinous. And this man, Nathan, is a prophet. David could have had him killed before he even got to the steps. So Nathan, is he going to come in and be like, David, you committed adultery. That's really bad. No, he knows David's heart has to change. So he tells him this story about a rich man who had many sheep and all kinds of bulls and cattle. And he had all this property and all this land. And there was this little poor farmer and he had nothing. He, had no, he owned no land, he owned nothing. And all he had was this one little sheep, this one lamb that was all he had. And it was all he treasured in the whole world. And that rich man, it wasn't enough, all the great things that he had. He saw that little lamb and said, I have to have that too. And so he killed the man and he took his lamb and he brought over that little lamb to his flock and that man was dead and had nothing and this man had everything, including that little lamb. That was all he cared about. And he said, what do you think about that, David? Does, what do you think about we should do to that rich man? David said, we should kill him. And Nathan said, you are that man. And what was David's response? Did he have Nathan killed for doing what he did? Did, did he say, hey, there's no way that you should speak to the king like this and then have him killed by his soldiers? No. No, because David believed. David said, I am that man. His heart was changed by the story. That's the power of what Nathan did, the power of parable. David heard it, and because he believed, he was changed by it. Now, to be sure, did he still have judgment for what he did? Absolutely. I mean, you, you know what happens next in the story. He still receives a punishment, but at the heart of it, God recognizes that he has repented. And of course, you're left with these beautiful, you know, these beautiful writings of repentance, like Psalm 51, where David talks about his repentance of that act. That's the power of story. And so when you're at Revelation, it's the same thing. It's, you have to understand that these visions that are coming are parabolic. Their story is meant to be... They're meant to be exposing of the heart. And they're supposed to show either a belief or lack of belief on the part of the person who hears. And that's why it uses that language of for the one who hears, right? He who has an ear, let him hear. Okay, let's, let's finish up here. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So where is that found? Where is the tree of life, paradise of God imagery found? Yeah, right found in Genesis 3. Yes. Genesis 2 and 3. But 3 specifically 
is related to this, this fall. Remember, it mentioned, remember from where you have fallen. That's an allusion to Genesis 3, I think. Here, same thing. Listen, you're not going to be, for those who overcome, those who remember the presence, you're not going to be like Adam and Eve who, who disobeyed and got thrown out of the garden. No. You're going to get to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What's the tree of life? What's the point of the Garden of Eden, really? What's the whole point? God was present there. What's the great part of chapter two? God walked among the garden in the cool of the day. The one who's present among the church says, hey, if you remember the presence, you'll get to be in my presence forever. You'll get to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God and be with me forever. What's interesting, I don't know if you guys remember that, uh, this, that I talked about in, in Genesis, in the series on Genesis, um, but when we went through Genesis 2, I talked about the idea. This is just interesting because I think it really solidifies the idea of this whole letter to Ephesus being about remembering the presence. Uh, for those of you who are here for Genesis, Genesis 2, I talked about the idea that the Garden of Eden was really looks like, and in languages used of it, that reminds you that the Garden of Eden is actually God's temple. Right, this idea that the Garden of Eden itself, that, that Adam and Eve, they use these words, work and keep, that are used of priests, specifically for priestly duty. And that this illusion was all set up to show you that actually the Garden of Eden is meant to be God's temple. It's, it's reminiscent of it. It's alluding to this fact that the later readers who would have understood the idea of the tabernacle would have understood the idea of the temple, could look back at Eden and say, oh, that was God's temple before there was a temple. And then it became the tabernacle and the temple. And then, of course, when you get to the end of Revelation, it's what? It's New Jerusalem coming down out of the heavens, a return to Eden. And, of course, all that Eden language shows up again in Revelation 21 and 22. But what's interesting the one connection I didn't make, but we're going to go back to a place we've went to several times in this series already, Exodus 25. And I skipped this part before, but I'm going to use it here. Exodus 25, remember, is about the making of all the articles for the tabernacle. They make all these different things, right? And in Exodus 25, they talk about the making of the lampstand, which the lampstands, the churches as lampstand, of course, are... are a symbol of the church, but they were relating to the reality of the lampstand that was in the tabernacle, the lampstand that would be in the temple. Well, listen to this language, Exodus 25. Six branches shall go out from its sides, three branches of the lampstand from its one side, three branches of the lampstand from its other. Three cups shall be shaped like almond blossoms in the one branch a bulb and a flower and three cups shaped like almond blossoms in the other branch, a bulb and a flower. 
So for six branches going out from the lampstand. And in the lampstand, four cups shaped like almond blossoms, its bulbs and its flowers. What is the lampstand supposed to be? What do almonds grow on? Anyone know? It's a tree. See, the lampstand is supposed to be the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And when they made the tabernacle and then the temple beyond it, it was supposed to represent Eden. That's why it's this, all this garden imagery. What do they put? They put palms and they put pomegranates and they put all these things in the temple. Did they have to do that? No, they could have done anything they wanted. They could have put any imagery they wanted in there. They could have put city imagery or the, you know, the greatness of Israel. They chose to put in garden imagery. Why? Because the temple, because the tabernacle were the places where God's Spirit, where his presence dwelt, just like Eden. The lampstand is a symbol of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. All the imagery of this letter is reminding you of God being present from beginning to end. When Jesus says, I'm the one who walks among the lampstand, he's saying, I'm the one who's here. And when he says, what will you receive if you, if you remember me? You'll be with me forever in the Garden of Eden. You'll eat from the tree of life where I'm present, where my Father is present. And you'll do that forever. But only if you remember that I'm here. Because if you don't, I am coming and I will remove your lampstand from its place. The lesson of the letter to Ephesus is that it is vital, it is life-giving, it is unnegotiable that we have to remember the God who is present among us. We can try and make all the trappings of the church, all the trappings of our life, look like Jesus is there and still forget that he really is. Got to remember him, our first love. That's what the letter to Ephesus has to say to the church. And if that isn't a message to every church that's ever existed, what else could be? Remember, God is with you. And if you overcome, you'll be with him forever. Wherever he's at, wherever his presence is, there you will be. And of course, that, that promise right there that promise is the grand climax of the book of Revelation, isn't it? Revelation 21 and 22. The grand vision of the whole book is that coming true for Christians. That coming true where they will see 
God dwelling, eating from the tree of life as they, as they dwell with him in his paradise. And that's the whole climax of the book. Can't wait to get there and talk to you about that. We've got a long way to go, though. But just like Ephesus, we need to be reminded, we need to be told, we need to be warned. Remember that God dwells among us. Tyler, will you come up and close us?